From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. And, um, we are in Genesis 8, and we looked a little bit at this particular section of Genesis 8 yesterday, and I just briefly talked about it, and I said we would come back to it today and look at it because I wanted to spend a little bit of time looking at what Noah does when he gets off of the ark. So he spends a year and 17 days on the ark, and then he gets out of the ark, gets out all the animals, and now instead of kissing the ground, Noah does a very, very curious thing. And so let's just go back and look at that little section of scripture again and read it, okay? So Genesis 8, beginning at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So Noah gets out of the ark, and the first thing he does is he builds an altar to the Lord, and then he takes some of the animals. Now remember, uh, this is, we know that that the the uh, birds found an the dove went out and found an olive branch and all the other animals scattered but Noah had some extra clean animals with him on the ark for the whole year and these are part of those animals and I'm sure that Noah at some point would know that food is going to be scarce once they get off of the ark. It's not like the food just automatically comes back. You might have to wait seasons to get food. There may not be any animals except for the, except for the animals that, that Noah had with him on the ark. Now they could have, you know, some of these animals, these clean animals breed like rabbits anyway. So maybe he had some, you know, extras of these, of these animals. But you have to know that at some level, when Noah decides that he's going to sacrifice some of these animals on the altar to God, that it is a big deal because this is a, uh, this is, um, uh, this is a source of, of, it could be a source of food for him, right? We know that you can eat meat. That doesn't come until later, but that, um, but obviously, any type of sacrifice of any animal, I mean, would be, would be a source of food for creation, right? I mean, this isn't just a flippant thing. I mean, Noah is, is taking a portion of what he has, uh, and, and he's offering it on the altar to God. I mean, some of these animals may have made eggs for Noah. Uh, you just, you, you don't know, right? I mean, this is, this is a big deal for Noah. And he decides to give as an offering a sacrifice, what he calls a burnt offering. Let's just take a look at that real quick. Um, the Noah built an altar and he sacrificed, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. He took some of the clean animals and clean birds. So 
obviously we don't know what clean animals. It could have been a goat. Uh, it could have been uh, sheep. Uh, those are typically what were used for offerings, right? And obviously goat and sheep have, even if you're not eating the goat and sheep yet, uh, they have tremendous benefit to mankind. There's milk that comes from, there's wool that comes. I mean, there's, there's lots of stuff that comes from these animals. And to sacrifice them and give them to God uh, is an amazing thing. So this isn't just, uh, you know, we, we read this and we think, ah, oh, yeah, he took an animal and sacrificed. No, it was, it was an important part of his survival and, and living forward. And he decides to give a portion of what had been given to him back to God and to sacrifice it. And what's called a burnt offering here, a burnt offering. Um, in the Hebrew, the olah, which is basically Allah is to rise. So the olah is that the offering. So in the, um, uh, in the Hebrew uh, people, when they would do an offering, what they called a burnt offering, this is a whole offering. So basically, we'll put the animal, let's say it's a, a sheep. Okay, let's say it's a sheep. They would take off the skin of the sheep, and they would save that because it has wool or whatever, and they would keep that. But everything else of the sheep would be put on the altar, and it would be consumed by fire. And as it's consumed by fire, you've got wood and you've got the animal on top of the wood or whatever. As it's consumed, then the fire raises up into the sky and there's nothing left on the altar. And so they would believe that the Hebrew people would believe that that whole entire whatever's left is the sheep and the wood and everything, that it was all consumed and it would rise up to God and God would smell the pleasing aroma and uh, he would be very, very happy about this. This is the whole idea of a, of a burnt offering, a holas, um, uh, which is interesting because in uh, the, it, was, it, it is a whole offering, right? It is, it is the whole uh, uh, burnt offering, I guess you could say. In, in Hebrew, it's the holas, but in, in Greek, it's holas. And uh, offer or burnt in Greek is kalos, uh, so you or kostas. So you've got basically holos kostas, um, and so in the Greek, the whole burnt offering that's here in the Hebrew is called the holos kostas or the holocaust. Uh, now we know holocaust as a big deal today, as you know the 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 killing of the Jews uh, that lived in Germany and Poland at the time of, of World War II. Uh, but it was not always known as the Holocaust. Uh, the, Jew, the, the Hebrews called it the, the not the Hebrews, the, the, um, the Nazis called the killing of the Jews the final solution, right? They wanted to purify their race. They wanted to get rid of all the Jews. And so they called it the final solution. Now, the Jews for years called it the Shoah, which means the catastrophe, like the big, the big event, the, you know, the, the tsunami, the Shoah, the, the catastrophe that happened. But um, somewhere around the 1960s, they started calling it uh, the Holocaust, the whole consuming 
you know, because of what happened, you know, burning of these Jewish people in the ovens in uh, during World War II, somebody made the tie-in that the Holocaust, the Jewish sacrifice in Greek of, of the Holocaust, was an appropriate name for this. And then I, there was a movie with Meryl Streep in 1978 that was called the Holocaust. And now we know this event of the sacrifice of the Jews as the Holocaust, which, and the root of that word is basically this burnt offering from, uh, from Hebrews, from, from Genesis 8. So that's kind of, that's kind of where this whole thing came from. And the, and the, and the, and the sacrifice that went to God is called a burnt offering. And as a burnt offering, it's basically the whole entire animal, except the skin, which is removed. The whole entire animal is put on. It's not eaten. It's the male, firstborn, you know, male, unblemished animal put on the altar. And the whole thing goes up to God. It's a sacrifice. And uh, God is pleased with this sacrifice, it says, right, that... Um, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, I am pleased with this sacrifice. So he decides because of this sacrifice uh, that he is going to never again destroy all living creatures as he's done. And as long as the earth endures, he's going to have seed time harvest and the cycles of life, the cycles of the seasons will continue on. So this is uh, the first instance that we have of anybody burning an animal on an altar for a sacrifice. But it isn't necessarily the first sacrifice. Because if we go back, way back, uh, to Adam and Eve, interesting things happen. Just take a look at this. Uh, in Genesis 3.21, the Lord made a garment of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So Adam realized that he was naked, and so God decided that he was going to clothe him. And so God basically would have taken an animal that perhaps was a sheep or a goat or something with an animal skin, and he would have fashioned a garment. It says a garment of skin for Adam and his wife. So God showed, God took and basically sacrificed an animal and then gave that uh, clothing or made clothing and gave it to Adam and Eve. So even in Genesis 3, right after the fall, we see that sacrifice is a part of our relationship with God. This offering and sacrifice is, uh, is integral to who we are as, as God's people. Sacrifice has always been a part. Uh, let's go back then to Genesis, uh, Cain and Abel. This is Genesis 4, uh, beginning at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel on his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not find favor. So even here, even though they're not uh, eating the animal or consuming the animal on an altar, we see both Cain and Abel giving a portion of their fruit of the labor, the fruit of what they do to God. So offering to God has always been a part of our relationship with God. And, and it's just fascinating because there's a rich heritage of theological foundation in this 
that obviously gets full fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ becomes then the perfect offering, the perfect sacrifice. Uh, but in the Hebrew scriptures and in the, uh, the Jewish tradition at this point, uh, particularly in the book of Leviticus, we see that there are different kinds of offerings and sacrifices. It might be worth just taking a look at some of those today. So for example, I pulled this off of a chart, uh, but this is, um, these are the different types of offerings or sacrifices that we find uh, in the, in the uh, Torah or the book of Leviticus. So we can see here, the first type is called the burnt offering. And this is basically the Allah, the, 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 uh, the Olah burnt offering that rises up. Uh, they ended up calling it the Korban Olah, the whole sacrifice. And it's basically something is laid on the altar and it's an unblemished animal and, and God is sweet, you know, the sweet smell of that burning animal. God's pleased with that. Uh, and then the second kind is called a grain offering. So this is typically offered at the same time. This is the offering, right, that, uh, that Cain had, which, which was not, but God wasn't pleased with it, but it's still a you know, part of the, of the crop. Uh, accompanied all burnt offerings. It's a sweet aroma to God. It's flour, it's oil, it's salt. Then there's another thing called a peace offering. This is a sweet aroma to God, but it's provided as a communal meal with meat for the priests. So this isn't necessarily sacrificed on the altar. It's, it's provided as a meal. And, uh, and, it's, and the priests are available uh, to consume this meal as a peace offering. We also have a sin offering. It's not a sweet aroma to God, and it's only the fat and the blood offered on the altar. There's also a thing called a trespass offering, which deals with specific sins, especially where restitution was possible. And then we have the thank offering, which is really just another name for the peace offering, which is the same as the peace offering, but the offerer at this point is already in a covenant relationship with God. So it's not like he's trying to get back on, good, on God's good graces. This is, this is basically sitting down with a meal uh, with God because it's a, it's a peace offering at, at this point. We, we are in a relationship, and so we're having a meal together. Uh, and so that's called the peace offering or the thank offering. Or um, in Greek, you might call it the eucharisto, which means thanks. And so basically, the Eucharist is, is another name or is using the thank offering name as a description for the Lord's Supper. So when we come together in the Lord's Supper, among the many things that the Lord's Supper is, it is also this idea that we are having this, this sacrificial offering meal with God that is a, a thank offering uh, with God, that we're in a covenantal relationship with God. And so we're having this meal together with him. He is present at that meal. So that is, those are the different types that you'll see. I don't know if we'll ever get into the book of Leviticus. It just seems like uh, years away. But if we ever get into the book of Leviticus, we can take a look in detail of all these different kinds of offerings that, that, uh, that show up in the book of Leviticus. And perhaps uh, we can spend more time on it. But basically, when Noah does his offering, it is called the whole burnt sacrifice or the burnt offering that's on the altar. 
And this is the very first one of many, many, many culminating in Jesus. So that's another uh, area to go down into is that um, one of the things that the author to the book of Hebrews says is that uh, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that he gave up his life as a perfect sacrifice, as a perfect offering to God. But one of the things that he did when he did that is that he took all of the Old Testament sacrifices and, and made them holy. In other words, that the uh, Old Testament sacrifice, this one with Noah or any of the other ones, that when the aroma went up and they were pleasing to God, it wasn't necessarily that the aroma was pleasing, but it was pleasing to God because it was a precursor or a foretaste of the ultimate sacrifice that God would be pleased with. And this is what uh, the book, th this is what it says in Hebrews. I mean, just take a look. Let's see if we can find it here in Hebrews. Um, yeah, Hebrews 10, 1 through 7. Let's just take a look at it real quick. This is Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality of themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? In other words, these sacrifices had to continue to be offered time and time and time again. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. And this is the key verse. It is those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for the blood and bull, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And so what we see here, the author of the book of Hebrews says that Jesus, his, his perfect sacrifice, when he said, here I am, he basically made all, every single time there was an Old Testament sacrifice, starting here in Noah, Cain and Abel, whenever there was a sacrifice, it was put on the altar or it was in a meal or it was part of a sacrificial thing with God. The reason why those, those sacrifices were pleasing to God was because it looked forward to the time when Jesus would become the perfect sacrifice to God. And uh, they, they obviously didn't know that Jesus, but they knew about the Messiah. Uh, and this is all fulfilled. Every Old Testament sacrifice then is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so when Noah makes this sacrifice, it isn't just that he's taking this unblemished uh, male animal and the birds and putting it on the altar. It is, it is, in a sense, also Jesus' sacrifice on the altar at that point. And so it is Jesus' sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And so it is Jesus' sacrifice that causes God to say, these things and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. 
uh, Jesus is part of that, even in the Old Testament, according to the book of Hebrews. So that is an amazing thing. It's just something uh, that you should pause and think about because God is, uh, when he became flesh and dwelt among us and sacrificed himself, it was all the sacrifices of all time that made them, that made all the Old Testament sacrifices pleasing to God because of Jesus. And I just find that, I, I don't know why that resonates with me so deeply, but I think it's because uh, why would an Old Testament, you know, why would the Old Testament sacrifice be pleasing to God? And, and part of the reason is because it was all consumed and went up to him and it, it was a precursor to Jesus. So that is, uh, that is a good theological truth to hold on to. Because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. We, we, uh, anytime we offer any sacrifice to God, we're imperfect in our sacrifices because we are imperfect people. And so therefore, our, our sacrifices are imperfect. But God is still pleased with them because they are, uh, remind him of the perfect sacrifice that Jesus had for us. And then so therefore, we're in the kingdom. We have all rights and privileges of being in the kingdom because of that, and therefore our sacrifices to God uh, become uh, wonderful to God, pleasing to God. And, and then, of course, Paul takes this one step further, and he says our sacrifice isn't something on the altar anymore. Paul says our sacrifice is our whole lives, our body and our soul, our mind, our treasures, everything about us is a living sacrifice to the kingdom of God. Uh, and the reason why that living sacrifice is pleasing is because it's perfected by Jesus on the cross and his perfect sacrifice. So all the sacrifice stuff goes together, and it's really kind of a cool system of sacrifice that starts here in Noah. All right, so that is probably all I want to talk to about sacrifice. Um, I think it's interesting, and uh, uh, you might want to just ponder that today and think about it, about your sacrifice and what you sacrifice for God in the kingdom and that sort of thing. Um, we have some time, so let's just dive then into Genesis chapter 9. So um, here we go. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all beasts of the earth and all of the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and all of the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human, of a life of another human being. So uh, this now is, uh, we see that before Noah and the ark, uh, as you were living in the Garden of Eden, you were not allowed to take an animal and eat it. That meat was not available to you for eating. Now, um, that doesn't mean that we couldn't have used those animals for food. And I do find it curious that there was, you know, with Cain and Abel, that there was this fat offering. So obviously... Um, Abel took an animal and sacrificed it and gave you know and killed it and gave part of the fat portion back to God as an offering. So it wasn't like they weren't killing the animals. It's just that they weren't eating the animals, uh, which is an interesting thing. And so 
but before that time, that doesn't mean that an animal isn't healthy for you because obviously we get milk from animals, we get uh, eggs from chickens, uh, we get all sorts of you know good things even without killing the animal. And so that probably would have existed at the time of Adam and Eve. The, uh, there, is, there are some very, very, particularly in fat, uh, in meat, there are some really, really good high-protein fat, fat-soluble vitamins uh, in animals. So there's definitely good stuff that comes from animals that we can consume without consuming the animals that are very, very healthy for us. And I would imagine that uh, even before Noah that they would have done that. But at now at the time of Noah, God says, okay, first you had plants, now you can have animals. Uh, you can eat the animals. So apparently uh, they started eating animals here. But now this is interesting. Where is it? But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. So this brings up just an interesting uh, f uh, worldview about life from people way back then. So uh, in the time of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, and all that sort of thing, the animal, the lifeblood, they believed that the life or the soul or the essence of an animal was contained in its blood. They called it the lifeblood, right? And we still have some sort of semblance of that in our language today. We say the lifeblood of an organization is, you know, this particular product or this particular person or whatever, right? I mean, that's the lifeblood. It's central to the organization. Well, for uh, an animal, they believed that the central part of an animal was the lifeblood. And so if you were going to eat an animal, then you couldn't eat the blood. You had to basically kill the animal and let the blood drain to the ground. And so that life essence now leaves the animal and it goes into the ground. Um, and that's now where that lifeblood remains, is in the ground. And then as another animal comes up, you know, it, it gets its lifeblood from the, you know, we're not talking about reincarnation or anything like that, where, you know, it goes out of one animal into another animal. But that basically, you know, from dust we go, you know, dust we came to dust we return. That basically life comes, you know, God allows life to come up out of the ground and then it goes back into the ground. And it's all part of this, this life that God breathes into us. Um, we saw a little inclination of this when Cain kills Abel and God says to Cain, the blood of Abel, his lifeblood, um, is, is calling out to me, is screaming out to me from the ground because you've killed him. Uh, and so basically Cain kills Abel uh, and his blood then is drained out of his body and it falls into the ground. And then from the ground, that blood, that lifeblood is calling out to God saying, Cain killed me. And so we see this, um, this sense of lifeblood even back in Genesis 4. So um, this is, uh, this is uh, part of the culture of what they would have believed. And so therefore, if you're going to eat an animal, if you're going to eat a, a, any animal, right, a sheep or a goat or whatever, before you can eat that animal, you need to drain that lifeblood out of the animal, let it go back into the ground, um, and then that, that's where that, that stays. So you also kind of see this in other cultures, right? 
because there are many, many cultures around the world or have been historic cultures where drinking the blood of an animal is part of that culture. Uh, and that is a that is a heresy. That is a uh, what would you call that? It is an abomination to do that uh, because the life is included in the life blood, and so that blood should drain into the ground where that life should re remain. But if you consume the blood, if you drink the blood, if you drink the blood of another human, right, or you drink the blood of another animal, then basically the life force of that animal then enters you. And so then you get the life force of that animal and you can go around drinking animals' bloods, you know, and this, this is even, it's found its way into folklore of Dracula and all that sort of thing. But it's basically, um, the blood is a very sacred thing. Uh, and it, it goes all the way back here to Genesis 9, right? If you're gonna eat an animal, that blood has to return to the ground and then the life blood has been drained from that animal. The life is no longer in that animal so then you can consume that animal. So this is, uh, this is uh, basically, it's amazing that it starts all the way back into Genesis 9, and we still have bits and pieces of this in our culture today that are just fascinating. Um, and of course, now we get to eat meat. And so those of you that are meatitarians, right? Who, what was that? One of them was the Jurassic Park. Are you a vegetarian? No, I'm a meatitarian. <laughs> uh, just so you know, your pastor's a meatitarian. I like meat, um, and it is okay to eat meat because uh, God says it was okay. As long as you drain the lifeblood out, it's okay to eat meat. So um, we uh, eat meat. There's lots of good nutrition in meat, uh, and meat is a good part of a healthy diet. So uh, I do eat meat. So I think I'm going to leave it there. Uh, we'll continue on in Genesis 9 tomorrow. Uh, I, I find this stuff fascinating, and uh, it's just just to be able to spend time and slowly go through this and think about all the different implications. I'm really, really enjoying it, so I hope you are too. Uh, so we'll get together for Genesis 10 or Genesis 9 tomorrow, but why don't we go ahead and close in prayer. Gracious God, um, thank you for uh, not, for accepting the sacrifice of Noah. Thank you for accepting the sacrifice of Noah. And, and because of that sacrifice, which pointed to the perfect sacrifice of your son. You decided that as long as the earth endures, that you will continue to protect us and love your creation, the firstborn of your creation, your, your, uh, your humanity. And so that we, for that, we thank you and praise you. And we give you our own sacrifice, which is our very selves. Be with us today in all that we do and keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen.